you, you really, this subject is, is central to everything about the Christian life. And so, Lord, help us move into the, the goodness of it and to receive it from you. And, Lord, empower us by your spirit to, uh, to live changed lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do is, uh, well, I'm going to move on for a second. And uh, you, um, this is helpful. Uh, I have all these receivers here. Uh, so I'll put it up here, back here. That might help. And uh, let me mix things up a little bit this morning. Start that thing here. So I've got me the accordions. Just a minute. Well, we have a whiteboard in church today. All right, so um, there's a big moment in this epistle. Um, Paul has been comforted by news from his friend Titus who went to the Corinthian church. And he reports back um, a number of traits that demonstrate real repentance in the life of the Corinthians, right? Now, when you think about repentance, um, let me just sort of ask you this. Um, um, I'll, I'll try to perhaps insert what I think you might think, I'm guessing. When you think about repentance, um, usually don't you think in terms of, well, when someone does something that is really bad, um, something that might require the elders of the church to intervene. Um, So repentance is usually seen as something that is really when you really need help and you've really messed up, right? That's kind of, I'm just going to guess that that might be how we view repentance, right? And, of course, it's a very serious thing that's happened here at the Corinthian church, and that is that the Corinthians have largely... Uh, been indifferent to Paul's authority. Um, they have tolerated immorality in their church, and they've required a lot of pastoral care. In fact, this letter that's called the Severe Letter, nicknamed that, and we don't have that one. Well, this pastoral care was like really direct and right to the heart. And when you think about repentance, we might think of, well, it's for really serious things, like, you know, real serious things. And I want to broaden our understanding of repentance so that we would think about ourselves and our lives. We think, well, I'm actually doing pretty well. When I think about my life or perhaps even my coworkers or people I know and their struggles, I think, well, I'm doing pretty well, right? So we live in our self-assessment of ourselves. That's kind of where we have this uh, internal loop going on. How am I doing? Oh, I look at my behavior. I must be doing pretty well, Um, right? And I didn't commit any serious sins, so I must be doing okay, right? So this kind of this self-assessment loop is going on inside us, right? Now, one of the things I said last week was, 
One of the most important things about repentance is it produces traction in the Christian life. Traction. It means that a person is in a state of of wakefulness. They're aware of something. And if we're always in this self-assessment mode, like we're just assessing ourselves, yep, I'm doing pretty well compared to that guy and compared to that person, well, there's really not a lot of traction in our life. So at one point, the Corinthians must have been thinking, not all of them, but a significant amount of them, they must have been thinking this. Well, Paul started our church. He does have a lot of good things to say. Now we have new apostles. They found some new apostles, supposedly. Paul calls them imposters later in this epistle, and they are. But the Corinthians must have been thinking, well, we're actually doing okay. Yeah, Paul certainly has his ideas about that immorality we put up with, and he has his ideas about divisions and our, his ideas about orderliness with the Lord's Supper and they, the list of problems at Corinth kind of go on and on. But in the end, the Corinthians probably thought, we're pretty okay. And Paul had a lot of inward fears about their condition. And really what's going on is this. Um, if, these, if these Corinthians and this Gentile mission falls apart with one of these key churches in, Gre- in Greece, what's going to happen to the gospel? If they just sort of disregard my apostolic authority, do you know what really is happening? They're disregarding the very voice of God. Now, that might be hard for us to realize, but to be an apostle was a big deal. They were sinners saved by grace, just like the rest of us. But the apostolic office was unique to that first century. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he uses this phrase. He says, well, we are ambassadors for Christ. And then he uses this phrase, as if God were speaking through us. Well, what Paul means is that is real. And that might be really hard for us to think. We think in terms of, wow, is that really what apostolic authority is all about? And the answer is yes. So if, they're go- if the Corinthians are going to hear Paul about correction, about repentance, about turning to Christ and repenting, if, if they're going to hear this and then disregard it, it's not that Paul has, is just an insecure person and he needs power and he's, you know, he's trying to find his identity and how well people respond to him. That's not it at all. What Paul's concerned about is this is, this is the word of God for them. This is, this is God's word for them and they in, are in danger of disregarding it. Okay, So I want you to kind of get that, the feel for it. Whenever God is using authorized spokesmen, we want to be very careful with how we respond to that. Now, I'm a sinner, and uh, no doubt about that. And I am some way God has called me to do this, and I'm not even, my point here is not to build me up in any way at all, but something else is going on here today. This is not a seminar, though it might look like one. This is not a, a speech, not a conference. This is not a talk. It's not a chat. God's word is supposed to be preached to you. 
end is supposed to be arrive not with me at the center, but God at the center. And God has set me apart to teach the church. And a group of gathered elders called the Presbytery actually thought I could do it. And they thought I was called to do this. And so that's how I got here. So I didn't appoint myself. Does that make sense? And so we, we, ever since Adam and Eve said, forget you, God, in the garden, and said we can define our own reality, we can define our own truth, we can define what's real, we don't need your words. Ever since Adam and Eve thought that in their hearts and became wise in their own hearts, according to Satan's instruction, we've had authority issues ever since. And so when Paul is rejoicing here in 2 Corinthians 7, he's saying, man, I've been comforted by the words of Titus. Traction's going on, meaning you've listened to me. And again, Paul's not doing this because he's insecure, manipulative, power-hungry, wants a big following, wants a big deal, right? He's doing it for their good. In fact, he says in verse 12, the whole point of my severe letter was not that you'd say, oh, Paul, you're the best but you would see my apostolic role in your life. And Paul clearly says, I didn't do it for the offender, meaning, meaning the immorality in Corinth, and I didn't do it for the one who was offended against. It's quite remarkable. He said, I did it for you, meaning I wrote the severe letter, so you'd wake up to my authority, and this would be good for you. Well, again, we live in a day, man, alive. We live in a day when we are all you know, it's, it's, it's the book of Judges where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I mean, it's, it's, it's going on. So here, now let's take a look here for a moment, and we'll get into this little handout for a second. So here's what is called the cross chart, and it's actually from a group called World Harvest Mission. Um, and um, so this is a cross chart. I want to just show you this, and here's... Um, let me explain. First of all, I'm going to start here. Two big categories, sin and the sinful heart, and then holiness and kingdom priorities. Okay, So this is a chronology of, of a Christian, a chronology, the, the, the years that go by in a Christian's life. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around a young, let's say, let's take a young adult who comes to faith in Christ. Take someone like that. Take someone in their 20s or something like that someone like that. And those are the most delightful people to be around. All right? A young Christian is really delightful to be around because they do two things really well. They don't know a lot, um, but they know two things really, really well. They know um, that they are sinners and there's a great deal of foolishness in their heart. They have a lot of self-suspicion. They've turned away from a lifestyle of, well, pursuing idols and sin, right? And they enter into the life of the church, and they are just excited to, to know Christ. And the second part of what they know really well is that they're expressing faith really well. And so what does this cross do? Do you see this little cross right here? This is the very beginning of their Christian life. You see what that cross does? It sort of touches both sides of, of, these, of this diagram here. What the cross does is the cross is everything. The cross is the coolest thing ever. 
The cross makes me beautiful. The cross spans my failure in holiness and my wretchedness in my heart. The cross is the coolest thing ever. Well, that's why young Christians are so fun to be around, because they're firing on all cylinders. And they don't know a lot, but they know a lot of self-suspicion. Man, was I, did I have a lot of foolishness in my college days, right? And they've got self-suspicion, and they've got faith. And what's remarkable is that in a six- or 12-month period of time, they grow like crazy, right? Now, what's going to happen is, as they go along and they learn more and more and about the kingdom priorities, the things that should become central to their priorities and their hopes and what they should aspire to, and they should be growing in holiness, right? Well, there's kind of a tragic thing going on on this whiteboard. Uh, I tried to, to draw the cross at the same height. I fail. Um, but um, let's make this one a little bit smaller. There you go. Okay. So what would happen if this beautiful cross at this stage is still the same small cross at this stage? Let's say we're looking 10 years into that person's life. Now, you notice above the cross, there's a gap. There's like a white space. Do you see that there? Well, what's going to happen? Well, a person will have an awareness of kingdom priorities. And they'll have an awareness of growing in grace and holiness. But what will happen is, instead of being honest with, well, they've learned more about their heart. You see, you've learned more about your heart. To make progress in the Christian life, it's actually an experience of learning about the, the sinner that Jesus saved. So, more and more knowledge of sin is actually going to be exposed. And if the cross doesn't grow, then something's going to have to, fe- something's going to, have to happen so that the person kind of in their conscience can feel good about things. So what happens in this zone here is a lot of pretense, pretending, posing, uh, a lot of talking to myself, I'm okay, or diminishing the holiness of God. So you can't, you can't hang around with a guilty conscience very long. That's not fun, right? So what do you do? So what you do is you diminish, you diminish the, the call to holiness in order to make yourself feel okay. What needs to happen, what needs to happen, I should ask you this, what needs to happen is this cross should become massive. It's the only hope. It never was based upon our performance. So this cross must become big and beautiful in order for me to really understand that that I should turn away from pretense. Just like I was here. Remember that young Christian here? Remember that delightful young adult coming out of kind of like a party lifestyle and in in college and just loose living, going all over the place, and now what? You know what? Holiness is important, but Jesus spans the gap. And sin, yes, Jesus spans the gap. I have nothing to hide behind. There's no pretense in me. I'm a fool. 
Right? You've been in a Bible study where there's a young Christian talking. They just talk openly about, man, foolishness and craziness and well, my heart. And they have a lot of self-suspicion. Well, what happens to us as years go by? Well, we tend to lose this. We tend to sort of excuse this. Our obedience really wanes. And our vision of the cross, really, it's just still an okay cross. It's, it's grace, but it's not amazing grace. I feel very lonely up here. Am I the only one who experiences this? It's grace, but it's not amazing grace. See, that's the heart problem for the Corinthians. They were in danger of just saying, we're okay. And they've got a living, breathing apostle who's bringing the very word of God to them. And they're saying, yeah, we're okay. So, Let's look at this invisible, invisible chart here. Let's take a look at this. Just There's too many ideas here. This comes from a group that is called Harvest USA. Uh, I would endorse them highly if you would like to support them financially. That's a, a group of counselors who have originally, and 20 years ago, this is what they were known for. They've expanded their ministry um, Harvest USA has uh, specialized in people coming out of sexual addictions and homosexual lifestyle. Uh, and their testimonies are fantastic. The testimonies of people, of former uh, homosexuals, that's what you want to listen to. You want to listen to how they have repented, how they have changed. So this is, but they've expanded into all kinds of counseling now. And so this. This is essentially the outward characteristics, the visible ones and the invisible ones. Let me just do a couple of these. The visible ones are increasing transparency, increasing accountability. That's what's going on with the Corinthians. Increasing risk by asking others into your experience and your life to speak the truth in love. Cutting off the means of sin, structuring your life so as to make it more difficult to sin. Common sense things. Cut off, pluck out whatever causes you to sin, making an accountability contract, increasingly, increasing ruthlessness, ruthlessness in how you view and treat your sin. Now, that is communicated in the language of Paul when he talks about how he observes what the Corinthians are expressing. Notice, look at verse, notice verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Now, what's going on here is that the, the, the Corinthians are, no, are not blaming Paul or their circumstances and saying the trouble is out there. The Corinthians are turning to themselves, and when he uses the word indignation, right, to be indignant towards someone, right, you I can't believe, right, right, well, the indignation is inward. It's not about you, Paul. It's about us. When Paul describes repentance, it's about the Corinthians looking to themselves saying, oh, we're indignant toward our, our lack of 
care and love for you, Paul. We're indignant toward ourselves. We should have loved you better. We should have listened to you. So the indignation is inward, right? Now, Harvest USA is suggesting this is something you can actually see, you can hear from someone. So when you're, when you're, when someone's repenting, when someone really is repenting, it's like the best thing in the world if you're a counselor with them or if you're a, a, another woman coming alongside a, a woman and, and just admitting the hardness of, their, of the heart. And they're just saying, oh, I can see that I was bitter. I can see that is a, that is a, it's a gift to be there because you can assure them of God's love. But there's strength and there's power and there's, well, what you're watching is someone expressing salvation. The real them is coming out. They're not going to tolerate sin anymore. It's the real them. And Paul says this. He says, you have a godly grief that assures you of salvation. Worldly grief is just self-centered and it's, it's, it's self-pity. And worldly grief is really, I'm sorry for the consequences that I have to face for my sin. Something like Judas experienced. He was sorry, but it wasn't a godly sorrow. It wasn't God-centered in his, in his sorrow. Godly sorrow is Godward. Oh, I have brought shame upon the name of Christ. How can I make this right? So those are some of the some visible, there's so many good ideas here. Um, uh, I'll let you look at the rest of those, and for the sake of time, um, just some beautiful statements outward. But look at the inward ones, invisible. Increasing brokenness and sorrow over your sin and the state of your heart. Increasing faith in what the atonement of Jesus means for our life. Increasing hope in the love of God through Jesus Christ. You see, it's, it's, not, it's not the worst thing to have to repent. It's, an, it's an experience of, oh God, you have not given up on me. You are not going to give up on me, and I sense your love even though I have been corrected, I have been convicted. Even there, I still sense your love. Increasing identification as a child of God and a sibling of Jesus by God's grace and increasing willingness to endure and circle this unmet desires and to daily engage the battle against temptation finding contentment in Christ. I thought that was the most profound thing in the whole uh, handout. Endure unmet desires. All right. By the way, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, 10, 11, and 12 is the epicenter for genuine repentance. It doesn't carry, cover every aspect of it, but these words are so helpful Look, look at verse 11. Earnestness. Godly grief has produced earnestness. A desire to clear themselves. This means not that they're going to hire a defense attorney and then prove that they were innocent. What this means is, what can we do to make this right? What can we do to demonstrate what's good and holy in this situation? Again, indignation, fear, longing, zeal. And then the ESV translates that word punishment, 
again, it's very similar to the idea of indignation. And you could also talk about, um, we would not ever use the word punishment with church discipline, uh, but it could relate to the idea that you've been willing to do the hard thing related to the immoral person. And so those are just some observations. Essentially, what's going on here, do you remember the beautiful story of the prodigal son, right, who goes off into the far distant land and that key moment when he's eating what the pigs are eating, and I love the, the phrase, when he came to himself. That's repentance. Recognizing the folly that has gripped the heart and then a resolve to no longer stay there when he came to himself. Now, let me, I want to talk here for a moment and then I'll wrap this up. Kingdom priorities. How do you get around this self-assessment loop? Don't you all feel good about yourselves? I hope you do. <laughs> um, you're feeling okay, right? Sure. How do you get traction in your life? Like, to begin to grow spiritually. Just that's quite a broad subject, right? A big subject. How do you get that going? Well, here's what you have to do. Just like in this section here, you're minimizing, you're minimizing here. What you have to do is you have to get a good view of these things. Really ask God to show you what these things are about. And then to say, oh, Lord, I have a Savior who helps me bridge this, but also I want a change of heart that these would become my priorities as well. So let me give you a couple, uh, let me give you one example. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take ourselves to task with where we are possibly indifferent. Where we're saying, I'm okay, I got that down. In the gospel, we have such a fantastic foundation to be accepted and to grow. So I'll give you one story. So all of you know that I went to General Assembly this earlier in June, which is the gathering of elders, and we do church business. And um, So I was there in Atlanta, and I stayed at an Airbnb. Um, and uh, I've done this before, so it's kind of a unique experience. So you're staying in someone's house. Some, I've heard some of you that I don't feel comfortable with this. So you're staying in someone's house. And you get to know them, and sometimes you have your own separate, you know, entrance, which is ideal. And other times you're there, and you're brewing coffee with them in the morning and saying hello. And some of them are very fancy, and some of them are not very fancy. So, so I'm there with this one one guy, young adult, making it in his world, and I'm getting up early, and I'm brewing my coffee, and he's looking at me, and we're talking a bit, and he's taking this pre-workout drink. You know, there was a before you work out, you got to drink something. And I'm just sipping my coffee and sitting on the couch. That's my pre-workout drink. So, so he's there. He's doing his pre-workout drink, and then he goes and he just he runs this bicycle all over the over the town in Atlanta, and he comes back just full, breaking out in perspiration. And then he goes off to work, and uh, so I'm there, and then I take off, do general assembly stuff, come back, see him at night a little bit. Da da da. Well. So I'm trying to live a life that God's leading me. Realizing that I am to lift my eyes up and look out and see that the, the fields are white under harvest. 
So what I'm trying to consciously do is say, well, this is much more than just renting a room from a guy. I'm listening to every conversation, watching, watching how he asks me questions. He knows I'm a pastor. So I'm watching this thing unfold. And then on Thursday morning, he says to me, he says, hey, tomorrow night we're going to have just a gathering, a barbecue on the deck here, and you'd be more than invited to come. And uh, the guy who used to own this place is a friend of mine, and it's his birthday, and so, you know, come hang out with us. Now, when you're in the non-Christian world, I just want to tell you this. When a non-Christian invites you to a party, you go. I'm going to encourage you to do that. Meaning this, is that I should have thought through, this is my own, how God was working in my heart. Meaning this, do I have responsibilities? Yes. Do I need to do other things at this General Assembly? Yes, that's why I'm there. But as he said this, I listened, but I didn't really listen. My point is this, is that what I did was, because I have to fly back here and be responsible to lead church. It's always good that the pastor's here, right? You guys have had that situation where someone isn't here to preach, right? So I'm, I need to be responsible. So I fly standby, and uh, so I looked at the flights for Saturday when I was going to fly home, and it looked really bad, like the ability to get back to Hawaii. So I had to leave Friday morning at 4 in the morning. I was at Atlanta Airport. By the way, security's already backing up at 4 a.m. So I, I, I just basically just take off. All the General Assembly stuff was pretty much done by Friday, so I have to get home. I've got to be back here, so I take off on Friday. When I'm on the plane, I'm thinking about this. I'm going, wow. And I had another experience with a non-Christian. I'll tell that one later. But I was interested. I'm on the plane, I'm thinking, what, you know, I did the right thing. I'm going to get back to church. I'm going to get back to responsible. You know, did the right thing. I, just, I was just invited to a party, and I turned it down. Could I have tried to figure out, and I could have, to get home on Saturday, and it would have been a big hassle for me, and figure out, and I'd be exhausted. Maybe I arrived midnight on Saturday, and I'm preaching here on Sunday, right? But it was easier and even, quote, quote, better, right? But I thought to myself, without trying to be too hard on myself, I began to think, Should I have just abandoned my own plans? Should I have been a little more reckless for the kingdom of God? What would happen if Brandon has to come up here and say, well, Pastor Todd is on on some evangelism thing with an Airbnb host and spending the weekend with this guy, so I guess I'm going to preach. See? So I began to look, and I began to think, why don't I take more risks for the kingdom? I'm a kingdom worker. I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes, right? Why don't I model these things more? Meaning, to be invited to a non-Christian's home and to come to a gathering, a party, and to meet even more of them. Well, from where I'm coming from and how I've seen God use these kinds of things, I should have jumped on it. I shouldn't have just been saying in my heart, well, I'm okay. And it should be about my schedule. Is this making sense? See, as long as I keep saying to myself, well, I'm okay, everything's fine, then I've got this little small cross, and it hasn't progressed at all. 
The big cross is is slaying my self-preserving tendencies. The big cross is saying, you're going to be okay, you'll survive. Slays the esteem of people in order to do priorities in the kingdom. We will not progress in repentance unless the authority of God's word penetrates our heart. And this includes dozens of subjects. Generosity, evangelism, fellowship, prayer, worship, scripture. You know, do you know why you don't read the Bible if you, it just applies to you? Do you know why? Because you're saying to yourself, I'm okay. I've got enough revelation. I've got enough input, right? I'm okay. Now, my point here is this, is that you would experience repentance as a regular thing. It's not something to be just for those, oh, wow, someone really, someone really messed up and they have to meet with the elders. That's, that's oh, I'm, I'm so sorry for them. I should be on a plane flying home repenting, saying, oh, Lord, Lord, I can see where my self-preserving, comfort-seeking shaped these last 24 hours. Help me to move in the power of your spirit and to believe. And you see, to restore, and then I'm, I'm wrapping this up here. You see, you've got to remember that this is the joyful Christian. This is the joyful Christian. They are firing on all cylinders. Jesus is everything. My comfort is not even on the list as it's described in this list I gave you. That I'm no longer... having to have my desires always met. What was I resisting there in Atlanta? I was resisting suffering. <laughs> Even though I was invited to a party. Is that pretty twisted? In other words, I was avoiding suffering because I just didn't want hassles flying home. And thus, I need to repent of the self that is still very much in the throne, on, on the throne of my life. And of course, I shouldn't be surprised. I shouldn't have to beat myself up. This is the sinner that Jesus saved, a very self-preserving sinner, a self-centered sinner. God knows the depth of my selfishness far in a far greater capacity than I do, and he saved me. Does anyone encouraged? He knows the full depth of your indifference and rebellion and your anti-authority stance. The full measure of it never looked to you for obedience, placed all that he required of you upon Jesus and is willing by faith to accept you. Now, let us move in the confidence of being accepted, sons and daughters of the living God. Let us hear the one who speaks as the Corinthians the concern was, will they listen to the Apostle Paul? For us, will we listen to our God and turn in repentance? And thus we have traction, movement, growth, a large cross, and the return of joy.
Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your remarkable patience and your kindness. Lord, help us to not become so introspective that we think everything depends on us. Lord, thank you. I pray, Lord, as I try to use this illustration of this man. Lord, that Lord, there's so much time that can be spent on preserving our agendas and preserving our, our needs and preserving ourselves. Father, help us live recklessly because we have been so well loved. We love you, Lord. Help us to, to, to be lifted up and to have the recovery of joy. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.